And it's the most, in some ways, it's the most powerful form of love I've ever experienced because it just takes over your whole body in a way that you cannot resist it. And it is pounding at your door. And it's an extraordinary experience. And when we block it, that's what makes us sick, right? When we try to numb it out, but it serves a function. And now I think we all have, now that I understand it, I'm like, everybody's walking around with grief and everybody's walking around suppressing grief constantly. How can you be a human with any ounce of sensitivity and not feel profound grief because what it is, is love. And that's what we do. We love. That's our essence. Hey friends, Lisa Kiefoffer here, host of this podcast, Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. In case you're new to the show, yes, this is a podcast all about grief. We explore the expansiveness and pervasiveness of grief in our lives because, well, let's face it, 100% of us experience grief multiple times in our lives. I witnessed it time and time again in my career as a social worker and in my personal life too, of course, with the most significant loss being my husband in 2011. And yet, individually and collectively, we are so grief illiterate and that's causing us all so much harm. So I'm on a mission to reimagine grief, one conversation at a time. I'm so glad you're joining me. Today's episode is brought to you by Vita Health. Did you know that nearly half of Americans have more than one chronic health condition, from depression to diabetes to stress? Vita Health is the only virtual care solution designed to treat the wide range of conditions that drive up healthcare costs and drive down quality of life. Vita offers personalized ways for people to actively engage in coaching to improve their own health. Vita providers use proven behavior change techniques to deliver clinically validated results for both mental and physical health. Find out why more organizations are choosing Vita for their employees and their members. Visit Vita.com to learn more. That's V-I-D-A.com. Vita, healthcare designed for the body and mind. My guest today is Cecily Saraski. Cecily is a longtime movement builder who's currently the Director of Communications at the Othering and Belonging Institute at UC Berkeley. She reached out to me last year to share a sweet note of praise after her colleague and my friend, John A. Powell, was a guest on my show. We soon entered into a beautiful back and forth series of emails about the nature of grief and how immediately following the sudden loss of their 18-year-old son, Teo, Cecily and her spouse, Carolyn Hunt, reached out to their son's friends and their extended family and friend network so they could all grieve and heal together. The result, which is still in progress, is an entire community that has been forever changed through storytelling, ritual, and deep listening. Oh, and also regular Zoom calls. I can't wait for you to meet her. Cecily, thank you so much for joining me today on Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. I've been looking forward to this conversation since we connected a few months ago. Yeah, I am really grateful actually for this opportunity because I thought a lot, why am I doing this while I'm still so deep in this experience? It's been 19 months since our son transitioned. And um, I can talk a little bit about 
that why it matters to have a safe container to have a conversation. So I just really want to express gratitude to you. Well, thank you so much. We'll definitely talk about that. My listeners know holding space and bearing witness has been a sustained meditation of mine for decades. And I think particularly when we think about conversations around death, transition, grief, even illness, um, we all will do better and be better if we can become more comfortable with that. So I'm always honored. I say it all the time. People think maybe it's just a thing I say, but I mean it. Hosting the show and having guests come on and share their story and be willing to just explore with me um, very conversationally is such an honor um, of my life. So I appreciate that you're here. I appreciate kind of the the way we connected because you know and work with John Powell, who I had on my show earlier this season. And um, yeah, just I feel a little bit like we were just sort of drawn for, to this conversation. For sure. And I think we have something in common when we think about stories that hold us together. When something like this happens, it's, it's the equivalent of an atomic bomb going off in your life and it obliterates everything. And most of all, it obliterates the stories that we tell that hold our lives together. And that's been so true for us. You know, I think about the stories about what it means to be a parent, your purpose in life, what your future is going to look like, how you protect your children, how you didn't, who you are, what matters. All those things get shattered. And shredded because that's the story that no longer fits together the way that it did before. No. And so for me, that it's one of my superpowers is re-knitting together stories, but I'm so aware of how desperately important it is in this process. And so I do that in conversation. So I'm really, I couldn't be in better hands and I'm really grateful to you. Oh, I appreciate that. Yeah. I am honored for this conversation. And I wanted to, speaking sort of of stories, the reason I ask this opening questions, folks who are listening, who've listened to the show before will know I ask the same opening question of every guest. And it really relates to this notion of stories and ideas and beliefs. And that's really inviting you to go back and think about your earliest memory of grief in your life, could have been in your childhood. And in particular, kind of the explicit and implicit behaviors and words, the adults or other important people in your life taught you about grief, sort of what you learned should and shouldn't be like or feel like. And the reason I say that relates to stories is we develop beliefs, whether conscious or not, we learn them, sort of osmosis, you might say. And then though it starts to weave together a particular story about how we show up in the world, particularly how we show up or not, for our own pain and other people's pain. So I always like to start there to invite all of us to think about what were some of those beliefs and maybe we're going to get to how we think those served you or not later in this season of your grief. Yeah. So an early memory of grief that comes to mind. Yeah. I mean, there are a couple of things. I think it's a a really fantastic question. And the truth of the matter is if I had answered this question a few years ago, I would have answered it very, very differently. So when I talk about having to rewrite these stories, really including our grief story. So I would have said, oh, I had, you know, I had great parents, you know, great, you know, normal childhood. And then I didn't really experience grief until my mother transitioned when I was in my thirties. And that's the story I would have told. But in fact, now that we, my wife, Carolyn, and I sort of talk about having this PhD and inadvertent PhD in grief that we didn't want to get, but now here we are. And 
if I'm being really honest, and this is kind of an embarrassing story, actually, there are a couple pieces of this, but this is really embarrassing to me, and I'll explain why, and odd, which is the truth is my very first experience of grief when, when I was probably three or four years old, and we lived in an apartment across the street from a 200-year-old's church. And it had, you know, it had one of these cemeteries that looked like it was the set for Michael Jackson's thriller. You know, old crypts <laughs> yes. and tombs, right? Yeah. And there was a steeple there. And somehow I got it into my little four-year-old head that God lived in that steeple. And I would stare out the window quite frequently and cry with a kind of longing And this is such a strange story for me. I grew up in a secular Jewish family. Nobody talked about God. I don't know where I got this from. There was nothing in my immediate world to reinforce this idea. And I also knew even then that it was sort of strange, but profound. I still have that feeling to this day. And and I'm not talking about the God on the, the Sistine Chapel you know, white dude with a beard, kind of, you know, I'm pissed at you kind of God. That's not what I'm talking about. I had some sense of something that was omniscient and loving and just this embrace that I missed. I missed it. And I can't, to this day, it's hard for me to talk about without feeling, starting to cry. And I knew then that was really weird. So I don't know where that came from, but it's, I think it's a very profound experience that many, many people have, and it doesn't fit into our models for talking about, um, you know, uh, the, the world that we live in. But the second thing, which I do think is actually related is I remember there was a time, I'm old enough, there was a time in the 70s when a number, when we all used to watch, meaning everybody in the country would watch the same TV show or miniseries at the same time. And there were a series of things. And there was a, right before Roots, the miniseries, there was a program called The Autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman, starring the actress Cicely Tyson. And it was one of the first times, if ever, on television, everyone was watching a show that started to talk remotely, honestly about our history in the context of slavery and Jim Crow and all of the ways this sort of, you know, today everyone talks about, uses phrases like white supremacy, but at that point in the culture for white people, we did not at all. And I remember uh, learning about like loving this woman so much and learning. And I, you know, I grew up in a a very mixed universe in many ways. So I knew many women like the character, Cicely Tyson's character, but I was a kid. I didn't know anything about their stories, nothing. And I remember the grief that just, I was under the table. I remember what the dining table looked like. I remember the feeling in my body of such, and she was a technically a fictional character, but such profound grief at learning for the first time what humans do to other humans. And I was speaking to a friend of mine who happens to be Palestinian-American the other day, and she had the exact same experience when she was eight or nine. The exact, I mean, the exact same experience. And so that feeling of grief, we knew, and I remember not being able to make a sound. I spent the whole time, and I felt that way when I watched the Holocaust miniseries, and that was my own family story, but 
I first learned about it that way. And think about that in the culture. We talk about gaslighting. Think of the things that we normalize, that we walk around. Adulthood and maturity means that you ignore things that are insane, constantly built throughout the structures, your lives every day. There's a moment every child learns about that. And I truly remember that my number one concern was to not let out my cries. Like that would be weird. And what do we do with that? And, you know, I became a life, you know, I work in social justice movements my whole life. I figured out something to do with that. But that's what we learned about, you know. So the answer is I learned not to express it. And I, we had an enormous amount of generational grief in my family on my father's side. And I have letters from my great-grandmother from the Warsaw Ghetto to my grandparents asking for help, asking for them to send something, bring the kids over, my dad's cousins, and they couldn't. So my father, they, I think there were those parents I know who felt they needed to tell their children about the trauma of the world constantly. And there are many Jewish parents, Black parents, anyone who whose family has been through this, there's one thing you can do, which is share it. And there's another way, which is that you put a firewall there. But as a consequence, it's not like we're not going to find out and we're not going to understand how cruel the world is and how cruel humans are. And we don't hold children. We don't hold them in our arms. We don't give them a space. Wow, what such beautifully illustrated and different. I really appreciate the stories that you told because often, of course, people talk about maybe their grandparent or a pet or I even had a poet on talk about when someone killed a tree in front of her and her deep connection to that loss. But I think you pointed to a couple of things I just want to draw out for a minute. One is just sort of the grief that we feel when we witness the grief of others and the sort of cruelty and the inhumanity of others. And that is one of the many ways in which I think grief gets disenfranchised. But also, you didn't quite make it super articulate, but I get the feeling in your family, like so many families, there wasn't necessarily overt, don't be sad, don't talk about grief, don't you know, feel feelings for other people. It was just kind of, and that's why I asked this question. It was the implicit, maybe change of subject, you know, kind of turning things around that still teach us things. So we're teaching our kids or our friends or our spouses or whoever, even when we don't explicitly say something. And to your point, I know, I think I've shared on the show before, my dad grew up in Hungary in Budapest. My grandfather was in many, many camps and somehow miraculously, because in Hungary, they were invaded last, made it out alive, although not so much there anymore. And my dad, long story and a continent or two ended up here in this country, but he really didn't talk about it um, in our growing up life in that same way. And, you know, we think about intergenerational trauma, but also just, again, our parents do the best they can to help and love and try to raise their kids. So I'm not saying... I say this all the time, you know, I teach loss and grief now at the university. And I'm like, don't go home and tell your parents what a bad job they did teaching you about grief. Like we all do the best job that we can. We think we're doing the right thing by our family and, you know, maybe even sometimes by ourselves. I can imagine for my dad and maybe for your family, not just that they wanted to protect you as a child, but also to protect their own hearts and their own trauma history too, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, my father, who served in World War II, his 
mechanism to the very day he left the planet was to make jokes and no matter what. And it's complicated because I also so immensely appreciate that about him so much. I so immensely appreciate that unlike some Jewish families that I know, and you know, I have many friends who, who t- talk about their parents raised them with the sense that the world didn't want, they, they had to be fearful. And my parents refused to do that. We got raised with the sense of here we are, okay, we're in the world. And I really also appreciated that, but there was no role model for grief, none. And, and that I can go back as young as three and four and remember thinking, this is weird. I need to not show my grief is telling. Which is a role model. I mean, I I think that's what I'm sort of trying to get at when I invite people to think about the grief beliefs that you've cultivated as you've grown up over time, not just from your parents, but in the world, we can, we'll get into it, I'm sure today in our broader culture, you know, in, in Western culture. The model is don't talk about it, don't show it, don't burden other people with it, whatever the things are. So yeah, I think just being aware, all of us being aware of what we believe, what we are modeled so that we can make choices for ourselves. Absolutely. And the other thing I've really come to believe, well, I understand it in a very visceral embodied way, that grief is a form of love. That's what it is. And it's the most, in some ways, it's the most powerful form of love I've ever experienced because it just takes over your whole body in a way that you cannot resist it. And it is pounding at your door. And I've never, it's an extraordinary experience. And when we block it, that's what makes us sick, right? When we try to numb it out, but there's something incredibly, it serves a function. And, and now I think we all have, now that I understand it, I'm like, everybody's walking around with grief and everybody's walking around suppressing grief constantly. How can you be a human with any ounce of sensitivity and not feel profound grief because what it is, is love. And that's what we do. We love. That's our essence as humans. We are connected. We belong. I mean, you're part of the Othering and Belonging Institute with my friend, you know, John Powell. So absolutely. I opened the show, I think in the opening monologue, everybody heard me say, 100% of us experience grief multiple times in our lives. None of us get out of this world, you know, without it. So that's not a statistic meant to be depressing. That's a piece of information for us to recognize. Okay, so if that's the truth, then what do we do with it? We let it so flow. We let it flow. And, and I love the way you talked about that, the movement and expression. We're going to talk a little bit about that as we go on today, because you shared with me some experiences and some writings you've been having since the death of your son that I feel are kind of a, a flow, a moving, allowing your grief to move through you. But I want to... um I want to invite just for a few minutes, if you're willing to share Tao's life and personality and his light in the room. I often, of course, invite people to share at whatever detail they want the story of the loss or the death, if that's the kind of loss we're talking about on this show. But I also want to bring people's life and personality into the conversations too, because that's equally important. So tell me a little bit about Tao. What would I know? What would I know about him or recognize about him or notice about him or see about him if I met him? I appreciate the question. And, you know, this whole story is about love and our connections to each other. And 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 I'd have to say that Teo, the thing that is special about him, and we all have our special qualities. And for him, he was a kid who was just loved. And 
he had a presence of someone who knew and felt they had always unconditionally been loved. We, you know, today being that he has two moms and being a queer family is probably the least interesting thing about us. But, you know, 20 years ago, we didn't know that we'd even be able to have kids or what was happening with the laws or any of these things. And one of the things that's very typical of LGBTQ families is for, for I think, obvious reasons is people construct families, chosen families as well. And I would say we were, we are incredibly fortunate to have a blended family. So our families of origin and many aunties and uncles and people in our lives who are family all are in love with each other and connected. And so Teo, as a consequence, had many aunties and uncles and cousins all of whom everybody's eyes lit up when he walked into the room. And he had a kind of indiscriminate kindness and love about him. He he was hilarious, so funny. Humor is a spiritual and human practice in our family, honestly. It gets well, us through everything. Well, it sounds everything. like it's, it's passed down <laughs> through some generations yes. that you were just saying. Like humor has, has served, yeah. Totally. So he's a hilarious kid. And I'll just tell you one story to get his spirit. He's also, you know, irreverent, doesn't go with, you know, questions everything, but with kindness and is just a very unusually charismatic young man who ended up being when he was 18, he transitioned a month after he turned 18. He was six foot two, blonde, ridiculously handsome young man who had this just love at the center of his heart that was unusual. And I would talk to him and say, dude, you're kind of intimidating now. He's a foot taller than I am. And you're walking down the halls and you're this handsome guy. You have to be kind to everyone. You have to be. And he said, he said, I am because I'd I am, mom, I am because I would want them to be kind to me. And when he was about, and we, we've learned so many stories since his transition, but he also had a preternatural understanding of what we're doing on the planet that has been really helpful to me. When he was about eight, we signed him up for his first baseball team. And they all have their little uniforms and the parents are sitting on the bleachers. And the way I remember, I don't know what the actual score was, but in my body, it was zero to double digits. They, it was the most painful. We needed a mercy ruling. Is that what they (laughs) call it in baseball? Yes. And And the parents were literally melting into the bleachers. It was so painful. And we were waiting for them to stop the game. And when we left and went home, Carolyn said, I don't think I can go through that again. And you know, and I say, yeah, no, never again. That was really hard. And Teo in the backseat, he's like, moms, you guys, it was a bunch of kids running around on grass with sticks and balls. I mean, mic drop. Yeah. Eight? Yeah, probably seven, eight. And that story, that understanding is one of the most profound understandings for me to understand almost everything about life. Yeah. I mean, that is literally the most mic drop moment possibly ever on this show. Wow. So much of what we're doing. I was just reading about a a philosopher in the Times yesterday who has a new book saying essentially that, that everything is a game, that everything is a game. And so how do we show up for what matters, what values, our belonging, our connection? Yeah. And most important for Teo that I have to say, he loved sports, he loved rap music, and he loved his friends most of all. Mm, I love that. 
all that connection and belonging and and friendship even has its own, I think, narrow identity. As you were just saying, you sort of had this chosen expansive family. And I think even the way in which we delineate friendships and family sometimes kind of misses the point to what you, you know, what we were just talking about, like love and being loved and belonging is, is beyond the borders of family, friend, neighbor, et cetera. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's been so tied into our experiences for sure. Thank you for bringing, oh, I just, I mean, I felt, I really felt blessed and gifted to have him and his spirit be in this conversation with us. So thank you for bringing that. And I want to be mindful. I'm noticing I'm even traversing back and forth between present tense and past tense. And we're going to talk a little bit later, but I wanted to just pause and talk to our listeners directly. I've said this before, but I think this might be a good time to say this again, which is especially you know, if we're talking about a death loss, I have other kinds of conversations around grief on this show. But when you're the griever, it's your business about whether or not you want to talk about somebody in the present tense, in the past tense, if you want to go back and forth, that's your business. You don't owe anybody an explanation. If you feel very strongly, it's also absolutely reasonable to sort of invite the people closest in your community to let them know what you prefer. But I just wanted to kind of pause and I know we'll come back to that because some of other conversations we're going to have about your connection, your continuing connection with Teo. But I just didn't want to miss that opportunity to remind us that And if you're just a friend or a supporter listening, if your friend or family member is going back and forth between past and present tense, don't get hung up on that. You don't have to do an intervention or be worried. That's how they're choosing to keep that person alive with them. So that's my little PSA from the moment. Okay, we'll come back to the conversation. When we come back, Cecily shares a bit about how her son Teo died and explain the powerful gatherings and rituals that unfolded first as an impromptu gathering by the baseball field and eventually weekly, then monthly in their backyard. Rituals co-created by his friends, by her spouse, Carolyn, all in support of their collective healing. I'm your host, Lisa Kiefoffer, and you're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch with my guest, Cecily Saraski. Hey, don't forget, if you want to keep up with the latest on the show, make sure you're subscribed on your favorite podcast platform. And if you want some behind the scenes news, the latest on my work with companies, the scoop on the book I'm writing, same name as the show, Grief is a Sneaky Bitch, and so much more, visit lisakeefoffer.com. That's Lisa, K-E-E-F-A-U-V-E-R.com. And sign up for my not so regular newsletter. Why not so regular? Because grief isn't on a schedule and neither is this newsletter. So you just mentioned that Teo has mic drop moments, probably had many of them through his 18 years on this earth. Just after his 18th birthday, he passed. Is there anything that you want to share about how or why, or just even to let us in on sort of how that then informed kind of your early grief, your and Carolyn's early grief and and his friends, which we're going to talk about too. Sure. Yes. Well, it was essentially a terrible fluke accident and tragedy. He got a Percocet from a kid, what he thought was a Percocet, and the pill was fentanyl. And as we know, in its most microscopic forms, it is lethal. And he closed his eyes and didn't wake up. And we found him. 
But I also want to say that this happened right after Shelter in Place and, and his senior year. And I want to say this just as a general statement, not just his story. His senior year, he later in the year, he started to experience extreme anxiety. And he started self-medicating, experimenting. We talked about it, et cetera. So that was really, and got him into treatment, but that was, I think, related to how he ended up with, with the Percocet. And he would say, mom, all the kids are having a hard time, all the kids. And that, to me, it goes back to that story I told about grief that we have normalized so much that is not normal. It is a structural issue. The number, I'm sure you know and talk about it, the numbers of kids who are experiencing anxiety is astronomical. They are experiencing it, not because there is something wrong with them, but because they are beautiful beings here to love and they feel. Yeah. And they're recognizing all the things that are wrong with what's happening, you know, the wrongness of what's happening in the world. It's not something in them. They're just actually, and I think, I think a growing number of adults too, just are becoming, you know, the veil is coming down in the recognition of all the harm and the suffering that's happening in the world. Yeah. We, you know, for whatever, whatever it is, 200,000 years, homo sapiens have walked the planet. Like we have not lived this way. We have lived in community. We have lived adjacent to nature or in nature. We have not lived with the internet and social media, et cetera. All, none of these things are natural or healthy or okay, but we've normal, you know, extreme inequality, the war that we have, structural racism that we have, all of these things are just, we are gaslighting our kids by then feeding them these scripts about, you know, just do this thing and this thing, and then you'll get everything's this gonna life. Be okay. Everything's going to be okay. It's not, it's truly not. So that, that story kind of dovetails into how we reacted and our And instincts. that's the backdrop of what was happening mm-hmm. at the time of Teo's passing. I appreciate you putting that into context, not to mention, as you said, we are already in a sort of disconnected world in this Western culture in the 21st century. But at that time of his death, of his transitioning, we were really disconnected because this was, sounds like early in the pandemic in, in shutdown or lockdown, which who knows what the history books are going to say about this time. So given the accidental nature of Teo's transition, the fact that you and Carolyn found him, the fact that it happened in a time where I imagine traditional rituals and ceremonies and the things that we do to help us put one foot in front of the other or breathe even. I talk often about how the fact that I didn't really didn't know how to breathe for a long time. That was already, even those basic, (laughs) what feel like not very helpful things weren't even there. What do you think when you kind of look back to that time, how did you... I know you later on or pretty soon after made some rituals or had to kind of be creative and create your own. But looking back now, 19 months, what do you notice about the fact that this loss happened in that particular moment in our history? Yeah. Well, you know, the next day we brought his friends over. We're in California, so we can be outside, which is huge year round. And then the next day we had an impromptu gathering by the baseball field that hundreds of his friends and kids from the high school came to and that community. So we actually, and we were very, we were outside and we were all masked and we were very careful. It was still early, but 
I always say we were a social and public health experiment because we probably hugged hundreds and hundreds of people and there were no we, no transmission carefully with masks. And we both spoke at that, which some people found rather astonishing. And we had these instincts that were right on. Carolyn famously invited anyone who, again, hundreds of people famously invited anyone who knew Teo and loved him to come by and see us in the garden. So all of this was conducted outside. And I have to say, ironically, it turned out to be a blessing for us because as we went in, the whole world went in. And as everything changed for us, everything changed for the whole world. And it allowed us to create these new kind of neural and human pathways. So she understood that those kids needed to come by and we needed to connect with each other and that we did not want our community to isolate us as a cautionary tale. We could not be isolated. My instinct was to go hide in a room somewhere, but Carolyn's was right. Carolyn has actually been conducting rituals for two decades and she knew the power of a circle. I understood this was a profound inflection point, not just for us, but especially for these kids. They're 17, 18 years old. They are kids. And I knew too many stories of people whose lives had changed dramatically because they'd been a teenager who'd been through a profound grief event and were not able to express it. Be held and born witness to. Exactly. Not able to be held. Exactly. And so we both instinctively knew we were going to get, and there's also, you know, there can be splitting in guilt, anger, blaming, cutting, you know, everyone wants a story to- To To try to make sense of the incomprehensible, to try to comprehend the incomprehensible. We need story. Including a story that puts yourself as the culprit. Yeah. Right? So As long as it's a story that is a comprehensible story, it sort of, in some ways, doesn't matter who the protagonist is. Yeah. And so everyone feels guilty. Every, you know, all those things were possible. And so I, I think for me, I knew this inflection point was going to change everything for these kids and for us. And we needed to hold everyone in our arms somehow. Do you feel like you knew that even back then? Like, did you have yeah. it? We yeah, both you did. Had, you had a Without very even, gut. Yeah. Without even talking to each other, we both, I didn't know what she was going to say when she got on the mic. I didn't know what I was going to say. We both knew it. But again, I really credit Carolyn with the brilliance of knowing how to hold a circle and what that means and the role of, of ritual. So, so we immediately opened our doors and we met many people, Teo's friends, you know, he had a firewall with any girl that he knew. So we met all these <laughs> girls, <laughs> romantic yeah. or otherwise. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, and that, one of the things, the girls got up at that vigil and said, I remember his friend Malia said, Teo is a ladies man. And, but then she explained what that meant. She she said, what that means is he was the one guy we all trusted. Mm. Well, that's a, got to warm a parent's heart right there. Well, I want to dive into ritual and circle, maybe even a little bit about how Carolyn came to that wisdom, but it sounds like that's pretty innate in your wisdom too. But I want to pause again and reflect on something that you said, I think in part for our listeners and for ourselves, and again, for for folks who are just listening because they want to figure out how to be better at showing up for other people in their grief, which I know many people listen to the show for that, which is the 
for many people, the story of experiencing loss in the pandemic was hard and heartbreaking because they couldn't gather families and do maybe burials and all those things. And so I understand that that's true. And one thing you said that I think is particularly interesting is one of the cruelest in my experience when I lost my husband and even then when I lost my friend Joe a few years later was that the world kept going. You know, I remember literally coming of coming home in delirium, trying to figure out how I was going to tell my seven-year-old daughter that her dad was dead and a plane was flying overhead of her house. And I literally remember thinking, how is a plane still flying? Like, I know that sounds stupid, but like, I literally was like, I don't understand how cars still drive and planes still fly and, you know, anything works. And so having to kind of walk in the world when everything else is still going on is this particular own kind of cruelty. So I can hear what you're saying in a way, the fact that the world was already having to adjust, readjust, shift gears meant it wasn't like they were flying by, you know, in traffic, you guys, everyone, you were kind of in sync with everybody shifting gears. And yeah, does that resonate? Absolutely. Yeah. And that's what I mean, that the timing in a sense was a blessing for us that we were all in sync in a sense. I mean, different kinds of grief, but but the world was in grief. In so many ways, we think again about the social justice issues of the time and the pandemic and just in grief, circling back to where we started, which was everyone on, on almost every level was having to rewrite and continuously rewrite and lit the story of their lives, you know, which is sort of my grief metaphor I always use. And there was a lot of unknowns to the stories, just like we experience when we experience a death loss. And especially when I think of, you know, this is what I would call an out of order death loss, you know, when a parent loses a child. So that's the context. And you and Carolyn knew instinctively and deeply that gathering a community, again, in context outdoors and masked and safe, was both a healing opportunity for you too, but also for these young people. Tell us a little bit, you know, some stories about how that evolved over time and some maybe, you know, lessons or wisdom that came out of that. Yeah. And we are, one of Teo's aunties lives in in the house a few feet away. And so she was a huge, had been a youth worker. So Diane was a huge part of this, could hold it when we couldn't. Yes. And we started immediately with these gatherings and a parent would bring pizza and then leave it and go. And so it was just us and the kids in circle. And the thing is that when this happens, all we're all broken open together. It's a completely alien experience to be adults with teenagers and not have this dot power dynamic, uh, you know, authority it, and yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I'm going to tell you what to do and da, 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 and control you and judge you, et cetera. I mean, we've had this really rare experience of this kind of lateral relationship where we all were sitting there in shock, all sitting there looking down, all sitting there crying. We were very, from the beginning, we've been very open about our grief and crying. So there was nobody saying, get over it, Buck. No, it was share. You were witnessing each other and being present to each other in a way that I think, ugh, to get on my soapbox here for a minute, I think we just, you know, all would be so much better off if we could do because it's not just parent and child or adult and youth. 
in every way in which we show up in the world, we have expectations of ourselves as people whose responsibility it is to fix other people's pain. Yeah. And the irony is the minute we show up with that intention is the minute that we affirm the disconnection between us and that other person. And the minute we affirm their inability to actually be seen. Yeah. And I also think the concept of a circle is there's no leader, right? There's no expert who, I mean, continuing, there's no expert who's going to fix it for us. We are in this, I always said, I felt like we were all in a cave together, dark cave holding hands, you know, and Teo in his own incredible way had the flashlight and we were trying to, he was helping us in some way, but you're all in, in that together. And we would do, and we met every single week for seven weeks and then every single month for a year. And now I went back to work fairly soon after and have this big job. So Carolyn is able to be in constant text conversation with these kids. And and it was very clear that our healing, I mean, just like our, it was everyone's healing. It has helped us so immensely to be immersed in the love, Teo's love, essentially. I mean, these are all, Teo had those, you know, those lightning in a bottle, best friendships. Well, Teo had multiple, 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 you know, especially with these boys, they're more than brothers relationships. And so some of whom are part, I mean, they're all all these kids, boys and girls are part of our family and life. And the other thing we did was these rituals that was such an essential part of it. And when I talk about ritual, I was used to certain kind, like Jewish, the only ritual I knew was Jewish ritual, which Frankly, usually I would go in with a huge amount of anxiety that I'm not going to get the words right. I'm going to mispronounce <laughs> right. the, you know, Hebrew. I'm going to eat the wrong food. And so it would take, you know, that that anxiety is literally the opposite feeling. I mean, I, you know, I love my Jewish ritual. No, I know, but, I know. But you can't but you know really saying. be fully present to something because you're, 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 you're lost in the rules of. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. When you're lost. And so that for a lot of us is what we think of as ritual. So it's actually a source of anxiety, fear, and terror, which is the opposite of what ritual is, which I learned from Carolyn. And so she grew up in a Catholic, Dorothy Day Catholic family. And, you know, when you're a feminist, lesbian, you can't really go be a nut. There's no place for you in that, in that system. And you have lots of critiques. And so she she found earth-based traditions and she found Wicca and she's absolutely, she's the wisest human being I know. And she would, you know, for her perspective on ritual is we can make ritual out of anything in any moment. It's not about being an expert. We got to the point where we had the kids, you guys come up with something. And what it does Think about it. When you are at, say, a dinner party and everybody's talking, there's lots of energy. It's very frenetic. Everyone's going off in different directions. It's loud. And then someone sort of taps the glass and you're all focused. You're all focused. And then they say something really important about what matters in the world and a person who matters in the world. And you suddenly have this container. That's a ritual. It's very simple. It's very simple. You don't have to memorize anything, but there's something that you feel in your body and your spirit that shifts. And when you go through something like this, these are the moments we, many of us in the modern world think we can live without rituals. And I used to be one of those people for sure. I used to be, in fact, I caused me great anxiety. I don't want to do it. Like, what is this? 
I feel very comfortable neck up. What is yeah. this? I don't and want to now, be feeling feelings and no. being connected to things. Yeah. yeah. And now I understand it. There's very basic, it's a very basic human profound technology that turns you talk about moving from a, an isolated individual to a collective. So you suddenly go from I'm by myself. I feel bad. In my pain. Yeah. I'm in my pain to the embrace of a collective and a good ritual container allows you to feel your feelings, which we live in a culture where we are not allowed to feel mm, our feelings. No. Well, unless it's happy, you're allowed yeah. to have that. Yeah, and that's that is it. true. And it makes us sick as you, this is your work. So you know yes. this. And so, a, so we would do these simple rituals and the kids came up with rituals, et cetera. And there's one ritual in particular, one of Teo's nicknames was Lemon. We no, Nobody knows why, maybe because he okay. had just very blonde head of hair. And so some of his friends, uh, some of the young women bought a lemon tree and we had a whole ritual. All of us were there. There were probably, I don't know, 15, 18 of us were there. And we, we had this beautiful ritual ritual where all of the kids had river rocks and painted messages to Teo that sat at the base of the lemon tree. And then we had a pitcher of water and we all stood in a circle and each young person would say a few words of love for Teo. Then they would say a few words of love for someone else in the group. And then they would pour the water out of the pitcher onto the base of the lemon tree and then pass it to that person. And something so incredible happened because when we did the ritual that night, and we would do this every week. There are many, many, we, we, right. we you know, Different there are many that we did. over time. Another young man brought lights, uh, market lights, and we all wrote messages to Tao on the light bulbs, and it still hangs in our garden. And it would just focus us. And one of the things I want to say about the ritual with the lemon tree was one of Teo's dearest friends as a family that he was particularly close to like another son. And so both of those boys considered Teo a best friend. But, you know, when you bring your younger brother to the high school kids thing, they're going to get marginalized because they're the younger brother. So we went through the whole ritual and got to the end and realized that he was the last one. And when everyone realized that, they broke the rules of the ritual because they understood the point of it. And spontaneously, every single person, like so many of these kids, all gave, gave honor to that young brother and honored him and told him what they loved about him. That to me is what a ritual should do. And it connected us to each other, to the earth, to our hearts, to Teo. Oh, oh, so beautiful. This makes me want to do an entire other episode and show on ritual. So we might come back to that part too. Thank you for sharing that with us. And I know so many of our listeners and myself included are sort of now maybe taking in and thinking in their own lives about, you know, how they might incorporate ritual. Because by the way, ritual can happen one year, five years, to, you know, there's no time limit to ritual and to our grief. When we come back, Cecily explores other support communities she's been involved in. She also shares the profound and moving experiences she and Carolyn have had continuing to feel Teo's spirit as very real and very present in their lives. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch with my guest, Cecily Sarasky. I wanted to share something special that happened recently. I'm forever grateful for every single review and note and DM I receive from listeners like you over the past three seasons. This season, I received another incredibly beautiful note from a listener. This time, they not only thanked me and told me about their special person, as you often do, 
They also asked to gift a financial contribution in support of the show and in honor of their person. I was truly moved and grateful. And in response, I decided to create a way for listeners to support the show in honor of their person and to share a story about their person too, so that more of us can join in carrying their memory forward. You can learn more about becoming a GSB podcast supporter by visiting the podcast page on my website at www.lisakiefoffer.com. I want to shift a little bit and here, you know, we sort of put the context of like, we live in a pretty grief illiterate culture. Well, I'll use that language. I use that language a lot. And here you and your sort of chosen family, friend group, everybody created your own sort of grief community, you know, which I absolutely believe like every major thinker, you know, we heal in community. That's the only way we can heal. But I know you shared with me a little bit that you've also had, you and Carolyn have had another sort of community of women um, that you've been sort of feeling supported by, held by, holding other people in theirs. Anything you want to share about that or wisdom or insight that you've gained from sort of being a part of that peer community? Yeah. What we were able to do, th- thank you, Zoom, honestly. Yeah. It was, remember, it was sort of new to many people know, at the time. Like, what no, but how this? do we use this for anything that's not work? That seems yeah. crazy. And it turned out to be incredibly powerful. So we had an created a number of circles, all of which still exist. Uh, We have a friends and family circle on Zoom and we had a close group. I had some very, very profoundly dear people in my life who banged down the door essentially because it's easy not to do that and it's scary and said, okay, we're going to, you know, and one of them's like, you know, mama bear, like we're going to get a group and we're going to support you. And that's just what's going to happen. And thank, didn't shy away, which most people do because they're worried about saying or doing the wrong thing. So they just don't say anything, which reminder to everybody, when you don't say something, you're saying something. So you might as well figure out how to say something. Anyhow, go ahead. It's so true. And, and, and so, and, and we have all these people who have shown up for us physically, all kinds of ways. And, and this group happened to be all over, you know, in, three different countries, really. And we just for a year met every single week. And COVID allowed us to do that. Some of these folks travel a lot and everybody was home. Everybody was rewriting everything. And the people in our lives have, I don't want you to feel sorry for me, right? I don't want to be a victim. I don't want to be a cautionary tale. I want Nobody you to wants get, to be pitied. No, I want you to be in it with me. And these women in our lives and the people in our lives have completely gotten in it with us. This is an experience where you are stripped naked emotionally in every way. And I think for the people who love us, who want, first of all, nothing more than to hold us, they also recognize that if they are courageous enough to be in it, with us and go through this journey together, it is an incredibly powerful, deepening, transforming experience. And, and, you know, I think a lot about in the Jewish mystical tradition, there's this idea in Kabbalah, there's this idea that the sparks are, the divine sparks are in everyone, everyone in every event and everything, but they're covered in shells. And our job when you hear tikkun olam is to sort of release the sparks through acts of kindness, et cetera. And that made now makes so much sense to me. We as humans, 
what we call maturing into adulthood is to sort of to become crusted over with self to grow shells. To grow shells. That's what it means. And we all know it. And we grow them to protect ourselves. We grow, you know, because of social conditioning. We grow. And we got to get on with the productivity of our lives, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Exactly. And underneath that is always and ever going to be a beating heart that wants to love and be loved. I really believe that. That, you know, one person's divine is another person's just love. And so this broke, we weren't broken by it. We were broken open. And if your community is willing to be broken open with you, it nothing will ever be the same. Nothing. Grief will be with us for our whole lives. But I also, I, I, I'm not going to go back to who I was before. I think we are all, and the women and men in our various groups that are part of this, these experiences are all changed. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We're always becoming. I mean, that's the truth about all of our lives. But especially when we have these profound losses, I think to your point, if we are fortunate enough to be in community, be held in community by people who are willing to also be sort of stripped down, that we are all going to transform. This isn't about like shiny, get to a shiny, happy place. I'm not talking, you know, necessarily like post-traumatic growth, but we deepen in our own humanity, in our own connection. It shapes the sort of emerging versions of ourselves as we become. And the only reason we can do that is when we're in the safety and community of other people who are willing to sort of, as one of my guests said, sit in the suck and kind of be there along with you. I appreciate what you described that distinction too, because so many people have said that to me when they've said something about this, when people show up to them and it feels like they're pitying them. And so then they learn to not want to have people around because it doesn't feel good. And I think that's such an important nuanced point. There's a difference between, that's sort of how I think about the difference between sympathy and empathy. So sympathy is sort of pitying somebody. It's an othering, you know, to use a language of, you know, the institutes, it's a kind of an othering that happens. And empathy is a, I'm coming alongside you. I am attending with you. And, and there's something that is joining in that act. And that's what we want from people. But you can't show up in empathy if you're not willing to, as you said, kind of let the shells go and be vulnerable and set down the expectation of fixing and to sort of be in it with somebody. And that I mean, that is a skill that we all need to be growing into, regardless of what type of grief or loss we're experiencing, I think. Absolutely. And because what happens is everyone, we're all learning from each other and we're all sharing with each other and we're all in different modes of grief and all trying to make sense of the world and having people in your lives who can cry with you. I mean, we had di different circles for different things. We had circles with the aunties and the grandparents and uncles who helped raise Teo. So they're in it and we're all in it together. But having close women, friends who had a little bit of distance and still choose like that, these are fine distinctions, but they're different qualities to the support and you need all and the work that you do. And you need that. You I need appreciate that. that. That kind of, I think of those as kind of like the concentric rings of grief, like sort of like the inner circles and outer circles, but how we see ourselves reflected and held by all of those different communities, kind of the closer in communities and the sort of broader out communities helps everyone involved move through and express, or as, as one of my fellow grief 
folks said, you know, metabolize our grief, but we need all of those different concentric circles or layers of people. Yeah. To help us move through that. Yeah. And it is profound. It is absolutely profound. The other part of it is that we've had an incredibly transformative spiritual experience. Yeah. Thank you. I was about to just talk about that next because I'm recognizing we're moving towards the end of our conversation, but the sort of spiritual experiences that you've been sharing with me, I really want our listeners to sort of open their heart and mind up to and just learn from you. Yeah. Yeah. Share away, please. Gosh, there's so much that I, I want to say about this. Well, and I'm we'll gonna... <laughs> see where it goes. Yeah. Um, so it turns out that parents who have lost their children in physical form at any rate, as a whole, are the most motivated group that, that probably exists to try to figure out some of these questions about what happens to us when we leave our body. And we discovered that it is an absolutely open secret amongst parents, so many parents, that they have regular and ongoing contact with their children. We, in fact, are part of a group called Helping Parents Heal, that they have a private Facebook group, and you can only get in it if you're a parent or grandparent. And they talk openly about staying in connection and and how to do that. I mean, we're relearning these things. These are I think old technologies that we've lost. Mm. Oh, and for sure. Yeah. And there's 20,000 people in that group. Wow. And because of the nature of this kind of, uh, like, I don't even know if the word is tragedy, but what has happened to us, because of the nature, it crosses every line, every racial, ethnic, class, education. You know, it's so there's something incredibly powerful about all these peer- parents coming from different places who are having very similar experiences. So I don't use the word that he died. And I'm hesitant to even say I don't believe in it anymore because the experience we've been having is, I would say, empirical. In other words, the stuff that's been happening is unbelievable and and happens every day and not just to us, but we counted early on at least 30 people in our lives who had encounters with Teo. Some of them are meditators. Some of them are, you know, college professors who never lit a candle in their lives. Some of them are, you know, some of them are doctors. Some of them are craftspeople or people on disability. It's all across the board. We're not particularly prone to sort of showing up in the world to to be open to this kind of experience. Yeah. Not at all. And so to me, it's not that I believe that Teo is alive. I know that he is. I know the things that, and and I can, I'll share a couple stories because I think people deserve them and need to hear them. We communicate to him. And this all started when my, when a man who was like my brother transitioned a number of years ago and I started getting these, uh, some of us getting these text messages that were not possible (laughs) from him. So I always joke, I need pyrotechnics. I need somebody to hit me in the head with a brick to notice. I think these things probably, these are not subtle things. And so an example of the sort of magical realism with which we live our lives, and that's how I would describe it, that, that we live in a way that is very recognizable in indigenous communities. And in the Western materialist model, there's sort of a condescending, isn't that quaint primitive, but actually these are pretty sophisticated indigenous scientists and technologies Mm -hmm. where you live with your ancestors. So that is so true for us. And it's been an enormous part of our healing. It's been an enormous part of these circles as we all share our stories. So the circles have also allowed us to share crazy things that happen that are just 
shift your whole cosmology in profound ways. So this is just a typical, uh, this is a a more recent example. uh, We probably have hundreds and hundreds, but I was in a work meeting and with two folks, one of whom was new to us. So we did our typical, let's introduce ourselves. Yeah. You know, folks who have who have pets and animals that are like their children. Well, that those were the two people I was on the call with. And so the one who didn't know me or my story introduced her dog and her puppy and talked about the dog. And then the second person had a puppy who was their kid. And I start welling up inside. I've, you know, I've held it together. I haven't had a breakdown in a meeting. It's fine when I do. I have incredible colleagues, but I hadn't for months. I start to well up. Puppy yeah. is even my generic nickname for our son, you mm. know, and and yeah. and and Carolyn. So, and sure enough, the person who's new turns to me and says, "So, is there a puppy in your life?" And I lose it. I completely lose it. We have to have a moment. I pull out a photo. I can barely speak. It's fine. It is what it is. That happens on a Friday. On Monday, Carolyn is on on a walk with the mom of the family I mentioned that Teo is like another son for them, and is so grateful to her, sort of says to Teo, Teo, dude, because we talked to him. Yeah. You've got to give her a sign. You got to give Rithi a sign. So Rithi doesn't know that. Tuesday, she calls me breathless. She's like, I have to, Cecily, I have to tell you what happened. The craziest thing. She's moving in her mother on this new street. They don't know anybody. She just comes out for a minute because the movers are coming and she runs into the neighbor. The neighbor introduces her to someone walking by. The woman says, hi, to to Riti. She says, hi, my name is Cecily. And then she says, let me introduce you to the puppy we just got, Teo. Stop it. (laughs) Y'all, I wish you could see, I wish this was a video (laughs) podcast because you could see (laughs) my hands flailing and my eyes. Yeah. There were, and and that's not just- just one of- Hundreds and hundreds of experiences. The, the the other story I want to share because it, uh, you know, like everybody else, I'm in this materialist culture and I'm like, I don't know, you know, what's going on, what's happening. Yeah. And, and then I've seen these movies that, you know, this sort of hegemonic kind of, uh, you know, probably Christian idea that if there is a heaven, there are people with harps and they don't really have much of a personality. And right, right, I don't right. know, they're all white and they're all this and they're all, that, you know, all those things that I'm like, that makes no sense to me. And it's in fact, yeah, really why problem. is that story any more realistic than this story? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. it's toxic and strange. And so I'll just, so we speak to Teo regularly through a medium and this is an example. And I have receipts for all these things, right? I like to keep recordings. I could do a whole slideshow. So the medium says, okay, this is really weird. Did your son have a sports trash can? And she said, I, I don't know what to tell you, a Chicago Bulls trash can. I don't know what else to make it. We're like, I have no idea. I'm like, that's definitely not his team. I'm not even sure, honestly, what sport they play. <laughs> I'd go look it up. Nobody, we don't know. Yeah. Caroline texts all his friends. Nobody has any idea. And it turns out they're not a very good, they haven't been very good in a long time, the Chicago basketball team. So we just let it go. Six days later, auntie and uncle, friends of ours, come in from Switzerland They come here, they're staying in his room. So we spend the whole night talking about them. They arrive and Susie, who's a writer, who's a very, very, very funny writer. So this is part of their relationship. Usually brings a present. She says, we're staying with Teo. So we brought a present. She pulls out a Chicago Bulls baseball hat that they've had Teo embroidered on the side. 
and we all start screaming because we had, we couldn't figure this out. Turns out they purchased it a couple hours after our reading. But the best part of this story, and this is a story we share with Teo's friends who get it completely. I said, Teo was saying Chicago Bulls, they're a trash team, wasn't he? And they're like, oh my God, that is Teo. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Amazing. So so his humor, and so there are a million stories. The point is uh, uh, that I just want to say, look, you know, the source of consciousness, what we think about it, it's provisional. You, you know, people don't, scientists actually don't really know. They, there are theories. There, you know, we live by Newtonian physics, but quantum physics is really weird and people can't figure it out. There's all kinds of, a lot of our knowledge is provisional. There's nothing that says this isn't true. And even if you don't believe it, even if you don't, the way I've seen it literally inflate a person, let alone myself, from absolute, I cannot go on to laughing hysterically. That particular story, one of Teo's dearest friends, I, it, it inflated him like a balloon. He had to do a run around the house because he couldn't believe the story. It was so intense and we were dying laughing. It was just so fun. So we also have, while we have the trauma of this grief, we have incredibly, very vital, very communicative relationship with our son. And there's so many, there are so many stories about this and, and there is a kind of cultural gaslighting about it. It's a, it's part of the toxicity of the culture and the toxic materialism of it, right? That the only thing that matters is, is hoarding status and hoarding money. And that's really all we've given our kids with, with a cosmology like that. Well, and sort of facts overload, you know, the assumption that there's some truth with a capital T and it's either is or isn't. And yeah. And that, plays into our need for story, but it also does not allow for the nuance of our experience as beings, as part of a bigger system of beings, by the way, because homo sapiens are not all there is in the beings world. And to your point, I think I love your stories. I felt even just in the telling of those stories, I felt Teo kind of here in our room, in our sort of virtual room together, but also something you said, I just want to reflect back to you, but also to the listeners again, which is Letting go of the shoulds or the belief systems that don't serve you in your grief are so profoundly important because it's your grief, it's your relationship that you want to carry forward. If you want to believe that you're carrying a memory only forward and that serves you as you heal and grow and rebuild your story, beautiful. If you have experiences like these or want to be open to them and that you feel like you're not just carrying the memory of the person forward, but you're carrying them forward, you're carrying like sort of a more active, as you're describing it, relationship forward, and that serves you beautiful. The more we can set down these stupid boxes or, you know, truths with a capital T that interfere with our own narrative that we're living into the world that can bring us not in a stuck place, but sort of bring us forward into continuing to live and evolve and grow in the world, then then that's what I that's what I wish for every single one of us is that we can grasp at that. Yeah. And and I think and this isn't for everyone, but I will say you know, I'm from South Philly. I'm very proud of my discer- my BS meter. So discernment yeah. is really important as it is with virtually everything. Yeah. Always keep your discernment. But to me, there's just literally no doubt in my mind yeah. that we are in an ongoing relationship with our son is, I don't, you know, I don't know. I don't this is understand a thing we don't it. even necessarily have the language for it. 
because it's been so we don't sort of taken out of Western culture and because it's sort of an older way of knowing and being in the world. Yeah. But you don't have to have language to actually have the experience of it. And if it resonates with you in some deep way, being open to it and inviting it, it will happen. So that is is the thing. And the healing capacity, you know, in the help in this community, the phrase people use is uh, shining light parent. And the reason instead of a grieving parent. And this is a, you know, a national, international group of parent support group. And the reason they use that language is because when you figure out a way to embrace this being cracked open, the removal of the shell, the get to the essence of the heart, and you are in relationship to your children that is ongoing, there is this expansion that happens and a vibrancy that does happen. And, you know, laughter, full circle, laughter has always been such a profound part of our family and how we communicate with Teo. And we still have that. We have the worst days imaginable too. It's it's a cardiogram. You are in all of it at the same time. But one of the essential human needs turns out to be awe. And I thank Teo every day for bringing us an entire network of aunties and uncles and friends, uh, deep and profound awe. And that is so healing. There's nothing I could add to that. That seems like a perfectly beautiful place to end at least part one anyways of this conversation. I can imagine we'll continue to have conversations like these. Thank you for... Thank you for being in this space with us, for bringing tales a light and humor and life, for reminding us of the importance of being in community, in healing, in ritual, and for just trusting me to have this time with you and to and with Carolyn and with Teo. And I'm just so grateful for this conversation. I'm really grateful to you. You've created a really sacred, beautiful space in which to have these conversations. And there's something that we're doing as we have them that's knitting together the world in a different way. And you do that all the time. So thank you to you. Thank you. Thank you. Before we close the show, I wanted to share something Cecily wrote to me in our email exchanges early on. She wrote, I used to think that the only continuum that mattered for humans was sad to happy. But now I think that the continuum that actually matters, especially in this culture, is numbness to aliveness. Numbing out and living in a seemingly safe and narrow emotional bandwidth may in some way protect us from our pain, but it dulls our lives, walling us off from the adventure of love. Like many people who go through losses like ours, I've learned that my carrying capacity for extreme emotions has become so much greater than I ever imagined. And that feeling those things, the good and the bad, is a feature of aliveness. If I had to go through it a thousand times again, I think I would in a heartbeat because it has been worth every second of those sublime 18 years with our bright light sun, Teo. I want to thank Gile Smith of Alafia Sounds for creating the music for the show and the team at Studio Pod for helping me produce it. I also want to thank you for listening to today's episode of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch with my guest, Cecily Saraski. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. Until next time, I see you, I hear you, 
and I'm holding you in my heart.